Today's woman of impact thought she had life all figured out. She graduated from college, landed her dream job as a psychotherapist, got married, bought a house. She had a jump start on success. What could go wrong? I mean, she had everything but the white picket fence. Until that one fateful day when the phone rang at this little house on the prairie. Her sister was calling to tell her her mum was unresponsive. And within 24 hours, due to a brain aneurysm, she was gone. Then three years to the day, she got another call. It was her friend inviting her and her husband to a basketball game. Coincidentally, it was being held at the very place where she'd last seen her mother. And she hadn't gone back since. So maybe this was the best way to honour her memory. Well, it was. And she was thankful she went. But shortly after her and her husband returned home, he said it didn't feel well. And after collapsing, he was rushed to the ER. At the age of 26, he had a heart attack and died. Now a widow, she clung to the hope that things would one day get better. And they did. Meeting, falling in love and marrying again was like starting a new chapter in her life. Until the wolf huffed and puffed and blew her house down again. Her father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer and soon after passed away. Why? Why her? All her knowledge from her profession couldn't console her. Why were bad things always happening to her? But she realised that drowning herself in self-pity was draining her strength when she needed it the most. So she wrote a letter to herself with all the things that could keep her stuck during her time of misery. And when she was done, she had a list of 13 things mentally strong people don't do. She read that list over and over and over again and through reps and heavy lifting new habits, her mental strength eventually flexed bigger than Arnold Schwarzenegger's bicep. She then decided to post the list online. If she found the list helpful, then maybe others would too. Well, 50 million people did just that. Now, a mental strength trainer, prominent psychotherapist, licensed clinical social worker and speaker whose TEDx talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, became one of the most top 25 TEDx talks of all time, with close to 11 million views as well as the author of three smash hit books, including the international bestseller, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, a step-by-step -step guide to owning your power, channeling your confidence, and finding your authentic voice for a life of meaning and joy. So guys, please help me in welcoming the woman whose articles are featured literally everywhere, from Oprah.com to Cosmo, Forbes, Inc., and Time Magazine, attracting over two million readers every single month. The woman The Guardian dubbed the self-help guru of the moment, the mentally strong Amy Morin. Thank you so much. Oh, girl, welcome to the show. I'm honored to be here. Your story is incredible. And what you, um, the takeaway messages that you have then learned and taught other people is so incredible. Um, and so where I would like to start is in the moment where you've just heard about your father-in-law. Yeah. It's been knock after knock after knock. If anyone could have self-pity and wallow in their own sorrow, it was you. No one would ever judge you for it, right? You almost had every quote-unquote right to do that because of everything that's happened. But in that moment is when you came to the, like, the most clarity. Talk to me about that, how that came about, um, and then we can dive into the actual tips. Okay. Yeah, I remember in those moments just thinking, this isn't fair. I've grieved for so many years. Life was finally starting to feel good again. Why, why me? And I had those moments of, you know, if only I could dig in my heels and make this not happen. But as a therapist, you know, I learned that 
uh, self-pity isn't helpful. I'd seen, I've been studying people in my therapy office for years to try to figure out how come some people go through tough times and they come out on the other side stronger and how come some people go through tough times and they feel like they just got stuck, like life was never good again. And as I watched these people, I realized it wasn't always about what they did. Sometimes it was more about what people didn't do, which is why number one on my list was that mentally strong people don't feel sorry for themselves. Mm. And in that moment, I came to that point of thinking, okay, my father-in-law has maybe a couple months, probably more like a couple weeks left on earth. How do I want to spend it? Do I want to sit around feeling sorry for myself or do I want to figure out how do I make the most of the time that he has? Because I knew if I just uh, felt sorry for myself, I'd regret it later on. I wanted to make sure that if I was going to spend time with him, I was going to be present with him in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be present with my family, not just sitting around thinking this is horrible, awful, and unfair. And and I knew those were the two choices I had. Mm -hmm. And that if I just sat there and you know isolated myself, if I didn't spend time with him, if I didn't embrace it, if I didn't talk to my family, then you know how those were two, three weeks of his life that I would have completely wasted. So I thought, you know, I'm gonna, even though this is tough, I'm gonna face it head on and immerse myself in it and know that it's okay to be sad, but mm -hmm. thinking about how my life is so horrible and awful and exaggerating how bad it is wouldn't do me any good. Hmm. I actually totally get that during while he's alive, like make the most of it. But I think where a lot of people then fall is after. Right. Um, is now everything is like, it, the reality has hit you, right? They are no longer around. So what allowed you to then not feel the pity party after he passed. So it was a matter of knowing, okay, grief is the process by which we heal. You have to go through the pain. You have to allow yourself to be sad. You have to let yourself be angry, go through all of those emotions. But that self-pity is different. That's when you start to think, my life will never be good again. There's nothing I can do to make this better. And it lends itself to learned helplessness and you won't actually do anything to make your life better. So I knew on an intellectual level that that's not helpful. I saw it all the time from people in my therapy office. And so that helped just knowing it, but of course knowing something and doing it is different. <laughs> so it was about catching myself when I was in those moods or when I was having a bad day to just remind myself, you know, I have a couple of options. I can be grateful for what I've had uh, at the same time as I'm sad and I can choose to honor his memory. I can choose to do things that are helpful or I can just sit around and, and think about how awful my life is and, mm -hmm. and not do anything. Um, so just knowing that I had options and choices and it was up to me to say, how do I feel sad without getting stuck in a place of self-pity and taking action, sometimes even when I didn't feel like it, to pull myself out of that was really important. All right, so let's go down that rabbit hole. So how do you avoid um, uh, feeling self-pity but allowing sadness? Like where, is there a fine line and where do you see um, people kind of stumble into going from sad to self-pity? Because I think it can also be an evolution. Right. It, right, it's like you feel so sad so long that now you've morphed into self-pity. Right. So, you know, when you're sad, you still have hope that things could get better oh, later okay. in life. When you are stuck in self-pity, you're thinking this life will never get any better. Or you start to think nobody can help me. I'm beyond help. I can't help myself. There's nothing I can do. Sadness is about knowing, okay, I'm sad, but I can stand it. I can tolerate being sad. It's uncomfortable, but it's not the end of the world. Mm. And when you know that and you know, okay, someday life could get better. You can picture a better life. You can think about, all right, when I'm feeling better, I'm going to do these certain things, you can imagine a life that still has some hope in it, then you know, all right, this is sadness. But self-pity is when you start to just imagine a bleak, grim future. There's nothing you can do about it. And 
nobody can help pull you out of it. Wow, so it really is the hope factor. Yes, hope is a big part of it. That's interesting. All right, so now take me through the 13 things that you wrote down at the time. Um, that, like I said in the intro, 50 million people ended up reading it and counting. Um, so talk me through those. Um, which ones are the, mo the ones that you feel have been the most impactful? Uh, so number two on the list, which was that mentally strong people don't give away their power. So that one's really about saying, all right, you're in, in control of how you think, feel, and behave. So often just our language that we use where we say, somebody mm -hmm. makes me feel bad about myself or somebody drives me crazy. I love that one. And yeah. when you start to throw those around, you think, well, then you're giving somebody power over how you feel. Or when you say somebody ruined my day, you give them power over what kind of day you're going to have. Mm. Taking back your power is really about saying, no, it's up to me to decide if I want to, how I'm going to think about myself, how I'm going to see the world, how I'm going to feel about myself, what kind of mood I'm going to be in, how I'm going to spend my time, who I'm going to spend it with. And for a lot of people, just changing their language makes a big, a big mm. difference. When you say, I have to do something, you're implying somebody's forcing you to do it. Just knowing, no, it's up to me. I'm choosing to do this today can really make a big difference in your attitude. And you see that that has that knock-on effect on how then people act in, in accordance to it. Right. You walk around looking like a victim because somebody's making you feel bad about yourself, your boss is making you go to work? <laughs> or is it about saying, no, gosh, you know, this is my life. I get to create the kind of life I want to live and, and here are the things I want to do. And so often we put so much energy into trying to control things that we can't. Like, oh, I wish this person would behave better or I wish this person would change or I wish my circumstances were different. And just knowing, well, you can't control a lot of those things in life. What can you control? Well, yourself. You can control how you respond to people, but you can't control how they act. Or you can control how you perceive circumstances, but you can't necessarily stop every bad thing from happening. Mm, yeah, that's true. So how do you first acknowledge that you've learned the helplessness? Because if that's just almost like a matter of fact of how you are, um, how do you recognize it? And then how do you unwind that to then take the control of the things that you can actually control? Yeah, so when you get stuck in that, it's hard to see. All of us get right. into patterns in mm -hmm. life and we think this is a fact, this is the way the world is. So it boils down to knowing that just because you think something doesn't make it true and you have to challenge your thoughts. And so we, what we do in therapy is often a behavioral experiment. So when somebody comes to a conclusion such as uh, I'm beyond help or people don't like me, I'm socially awkward, or I can't, I'm too shy to give a speech. Then you say, well, let's, let's challenge that. How do you know if it's true? You won't unless you go out there and do it. And when you go out there and you try something, then you can often say, okay, well, just because I thought that was true, and maybe it's a belief you held on your whole life, you go out there and, and act the opposite. Say, I'm gonna act confident even though I don't feel confident. I'm gonna try to do something I think I can't do. And after a while, your brain sees, oh, maybe you are more competent and capable than I gave you credit for. Mm -hmm. And you can literally train your brain to start to see yourself differently. But in order to do that, you have to kind of, I think, embrace some vulnerability. Yes. Um, and I love that you talk about vulnerability is seen as a weakness, um, but it shouldn't be like that actually can be a superpower. How do you allow yourself to become vulnerable in order to then um, do exactly what you just said? So it's really, I guess, boils down to knowing that you can tolerate being uncomfortable. Right. I think a lot of problems in life come from our fear of thinking, I can't handle that. I can't handle being embarrassed. I can't handle being rejected. I can't handle it if somebody doesn't like me. And so it's about facing your fears one small step at a time and knowing that those things are uncomfortable, but they won't kill you. Mm -hmm. You can put yourself out there. You can tolerate a little bit of distress, uh, develop the skills that you need to, to handle it. And then you can put yourself in 
put yourself in an even more uncomfortable situation down the road and you just take small steps. But what about people who have, let's say, tried that and they put themselves out there and they showed some vulnerability and they weren't met with a positive experience. And so now they almost retreat more and more. How do you unwind that? So then it's about knowing, well, what went wrong and is there something you could do differently? So sometimes people in my therapy office will say, um, I had a woman who came in, for example, and she was abused as a child. So she thought, okay, every time I go on a date with a man, I'll just come right out from the beginning and I'll tell him about my horrific childhood. And that will be the test. If he mm -hmm. still likes me, then I'll know that he's good enough for a second date. And she came in and she said, you know, all of these men just can't handle this information, so I'm flawed. And it sort of reinforced her belief that she was unlovable, nobody would ever love her. We had to have a conversation about it. Well, you know, when you meet somebody and within five minutes you dive into your horrific childhood, you're repelling them, that you need to make sure that you build a trusting relationship first. And then you can talk about that kind of stuff. And so for a lot of people, when it comes to vulnerability, it's, um, mm. it's not really about being vulnerable. Sometimes it's more about a shield of armor of how do I protect myself? I'm going to tell you all the bad stuff about me just to see if you still like me. And, and then they end up ultimately making their biggest fears come true because they repel people. So sometimes it's about taking a step back and saying, is there something I could be doing differently? Am I being vulnerable in, the, in circumstances that aren't helpful? Am I being vulnerable toward the wrong people? Do I need to develop a better, healthier relationship first? Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, maybe we see sometimes people announcing things on social media that maybe are better left a little bit more private. Interesting. So talk to me about that. Like, where do you see that line where it's like, okay, now it's, it should be kept secret or private versus being open and sharing your vulnerability? Where's that line? So, you know, I think there's a big difference between secrecy and privacy. Okay. And it's okay to be a private person, but what's not helpful is when we have secrets, when we feel like we can't share something because we think, uh, you know, there's something wrong with me, something flawed with me that. Uh, we sort of keep it shrouded under all this shame mm. and and we walk around hoping that nobody ever finds out these certain things about us. But then knowing, okay, privacy is about having a choice, knowing I could tell people, but I'm choosing to either protect them, protect myself. I'm doing this in a healthy way because I feel like sharing this information right now wouldn't be helpful in some way, shape or form. Mm. But knowing that you could do it if you wanted to versus secrecy is really about thinking, I can't, I can't ever let anybody know this because they won't like me or because it would ruin everything. It's really about that attitude that you have. That's such a great definition. Yeah, I never thought of it like that. Um, one thing that I find that, at least for myself, I definitely had um, when I was younger was just doubt, self-doubt. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that that's more common in females? Um, and if so, why? And then how do women, um, can they use it to serve them or is it just detrimental? Yeah, so definitely we see it more in women uh, when it comes to confidence, self-doubt, women experience more of it. And you know, when I wrote the book for women, I had so many people ask me, why would you write a book for women? Isn't, don't men and women build mental strength the same way? Mm. To which the answer is yes. However, women have different experiences. And I think one of the studies that sums it up best is when we ask little girls and little boys at age five to pick out a picture of somebody that they think is brilliant. And they have all of these pictures of professional looking men and professional looking women. Almost all the little boys point to men. That person's brilliant. Almost all the little girls point to pictures of women and say that woman is brilliant. Well, then they ask the kids at age seven, point to somebody who's brilliant. And almost all the little boys and all the little girls point to men. From just two years difference? Yes. Whoa. 
And so then you think, well, what happens between the ages of five and seven? Well, that's when kids go to school, right? Mm -hmm. And so who are we showing them pictures of when we talk about famous scientists and politicians and historical figures? It's almost all men. And so then you think, well, how, what kind of impact does that have on little girls as we're growing up? And we're told you can be anything you want, but by the way, there's never been a female president. Or by the way, mm. here are all these astronauts and then they just happen to be men. And so mm. I think there's so many subtle messages like that that we grow up thinking about, knowing about, and that we're taught. And so it affects us. How do we see ourselves? Well, there's, and we're told we're not as good in math or we're not as capable in science. And we're given that message in lots of subtle little ways, but I think it really sinks in and we start to have more doubt about ourselves. There's so much pressure to, on the, our appearance and the way that we look that men don't have that same pressure on them. And mm. all of these cultural things that we experience, I think, creates this a culture of self-doubt within ourselves. Yeah, right now I'm really kind of diving into imprinting at a young age and how impactful it is. And I heard you say about how um, blame where um, as a young girl or as young girls get told that it's basically your fault and young boys get told that it's other people's fault. And a perfect example is when you say, um, oh, don't make him angry. Yes. So talk to me through that. Yeah, just again, it goes back to the language that we use mm. and, and that will often be what little girls are told. Don't make your brother angry. Don't upset your brother versus uh, what we tell boys about, you know, that it's okay to express their anger. We tell girls it's okay to cry, but then as an adult, if you're 30 years old and you cry at work, we tend to apologize because crying isn't okay. All of these bizarre messages. So when we look at self-blame, toxic self-blame, women are much more likely to blame themselves mm. about things that aren't even our fault. And then when they've looked at studies, it's no secret that women apologize more than men. Mm. So we say, well, why is that? Why do women always say, oh, I'm sorry, even if you know, I'm sorry I'm late, I'm sorry about that email I didn't reply to you on time. Why are women more apologetic? Well, one reason is when they took a look at different social experiments, they found out that when men and women commit the same offense, women find it to be horrific and men are thinking, oh, it's not a big deal. So they feel like they don't need to apologize. So somewhere along the lines as women, we think any sort of social blunder or anytime somebody's upset that somehow it must be our fault and we become apologetic. And then there's all of these uh, negative results that come from blaming ourselves too much. So how would you um, deal in that situation where let's say, um someone has noticed that and they're like, I, I just apologize all the time. I think it's actually detrimental to the way that I think. Um, how do you stop saying it? Because then it almost like, at least for me, because I have tried to get to that point where I stop apologizing, but like the guilt like inside me is like, I just start feeling guilty about like, I actually want to apologize, but should I be apologizing? And then the guilt just like, what, like builds up and builds up. So um, yeah, talk to me about that and the guilt element of it. Right, so I think one thing is to remember that just because you feel guilty doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. Ooh, okay. Because as women, I think we're taught, if you feel guilty, it must mean that you've messed up and oh. you have to apologize, you have to make amends, you have to make things right. But the truth is, guilt is just a normal emotion and it's often irrational and comes out of lots of other things, not necessarily the fact that you did something horrible. So part of it is just sitting with the guilt and knowing that you can stand it uh, and that it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. And if you want to change how you feel, it's about changing how you think and how you behave. So maybe you just need to evaluate some of your thoughts. Are you beating yourself up? Are you thinking this person is going to be so angry with me? I've ruined the relationship. 
then you take a step back and think, is that true? Did I actually ruin the relationship because I was two minutes later because I didn't reply to that email? Sometimes we predict mm. terrible things are going to happen. If I don't answer every email that comes <laughs> in my inbox, then people are going to think I'm a mean person. Whatever it is, it's about changing that script in your head and knowing that, that you can handle feeling a little bit of guilt. And just because you do feel guilty doesn't mean that you need to take immediate action to try to rectify it. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I want to go back to um, just something that you said earlier about um, control. Um, I subject that I'm personally just fascinated over is that line between what you can control and what you can't control. So I find the word control or everything's my fault, I find it very empowering. Um, and I, I actually realized, look, everything isn't in my control and no, everything isn't my fault. But by telling myself that it doesn't empower me as much as it does saying the opposite. But some people find that trigger words to then retreat. Um, to you, does that just come down to language that people should be using? Um, or is there a clear difference to you about what is and isn't people's thoughts and what they can and can't control? Right. So a lot of people that come into my therapy office, they'll be so worried about something that they can't control, like oh, having this family barbecue on Saturday and it's supposed to rain. And so they spend their whole week checking the weather, thinking that somehow, you know, if they can just keep checking the weather, that's going to be helpful. So then our objective becomes, okay, you can't control whether or not it's going to rain, but we can control what you do. Is What's a plan B? How, might, how else might you handle this? Or they think, you know, it's completely up to them. If people come to my house and we're not able to do what we had planned for an outdoor activity, then nobody's going to have any fun. Well, you can't control whether other people enjoy themselves, but you could control what sort of a party that you throw. Don't put your energy into, into things that you worry about just because it might happen. Put your energy into what you will, how you'll handle it if it does happen. That's a really nice framing. I like that, especially I think as the holidays come up, like you were saying, like certain, you know, if it's like your mother-in-law or certain situations, you're going to be around people that you may not gel with. Right. Um, handling those in those types of situations, like what's your plan? What's your plan B? We do a lot of if-then planning. So oh yeah, think, talk to me about that. I love you that. You know, if if this happens, then what am I going to do about it? And something that we often use in public speaking, because people will say, well, oh, what if I get up there and I get so nervous, I don't remember what I'm going to say. Let's have a plan for that. If I get up there and I get really nervous, then maybe I'll take some deep breaths. Maybe I'll check my notes. Maybe I will uh, think about something positive for a few seconds or I'll excuse myself for a minute to, to collect my thoughts. Whatever it is, as long as you have a plan, things seem so much easier in life. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we spend so much time and effort just dreading, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? Well, finish the question. Say, if that happens, then here's what I'm going to do. Once you know you have a plan to deal with an uncomfortable emotion or a or a challenge that you're likely to face, then it becomes much easier to just dive in and move forward. Yeah. Um, you had a post, which I love, how to avoid toxic people or relationships. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a couple of things that I really love. Um, resist, of the tips that you had given, these were the ones that really struck me. You put resist complaining. Um, how do you resist complaining? Because your instinct is to complain. Right. Right. We spend so much energy and time, most of us, complaining about things that are out of our control, but also then complaining to people who can't fix it. <laughs> and there's this huge misconception that venting makes us feel better. Oh, misconception. Yes. Talk people say, that. I have to get it out because if I get it out, then I feel better. But almost every research study will show that commiserating, complaining keeps you stuck because you're not thinking about happier things. You're just thinking about all the awful, horrible things that are going on and it keeps you stuck in a state of misery. 
And, you know, there's one thing about emotional processing. If you have a friend and you call your friend and say, hey, I'm dealing with this issue with my, with my mother-in-law, with my coworker, and you're trying to develop a solution mm -hmm. or at least come up with strategies, how am I going to cope with this? I have to go to work tomorrow and I work with this person. What can I do about it? That can be helpful. But just complaining for the sake of complaining isn't. It's not about getting it out or about venting and releasing pressure. It's not like you're stuffing all your emotions if you don't talk about it. It's about mm. saying, how am I going to spend my time and my energy? Well, let's spend it on something more positive. Instead of calling your friend to complain about all the bad stuff that happened today and then getting in this conversation that's ruminating about awful stuff, let's talk about something pleasant and see what happens to your mood. Where's that fine line then about doing that or just sidelining the problem and not addressing it? So, you know, if you have a toxic person in your life and you find yourself wanting to complain about them all the time, it's mm. probably a good sign <laughs> that you need to do something different, right? You need to set some boundaries, whether that's a physical boundary where you're going to say, I'm not going to allow this person to, to call me and monopolize my time. I'm mm. not going to allow this person to, to say certain things to me anymore. I'm going to speak up. Or I'm going to protect myself somehow. So it's really about knowing, okay, who's this person I want to complain about? And what does that mean I need to do differently in my mm -hmm. life? And how can I set some boundaries around me so that I don't feel so angry and resentful about what I think this person's taking from me? I think in most cases, having a conversation with somebody, you, you want to know why am I complaining to people? And can this person I'm complaining to, do they have any power to fix the situation or not? Mm. More mm. often than not, we complain to people who have no power to fix it. Instead of complaining to the boss, we complain to a coworker or we complain to a friend or a partner. And maybe they don't have any wherewithal to fix it. So who can mm. fix it and how could I go to that person? So sometimes it's about confronting somebody and saying, this is what's going on. I think. I'm going to make some changes in my life. Here's what I'm going to do differently. How do you approach those confrontations? Because I think that that's where so much anxiety gets built up. Where like, okay, I've heard what you're saying. I shouldn't, I just stop complaining to the people that don't have the power or help to actually change it. Um, which I think that maybe there's a safe place. That's a safe place, which is why people do it. Right. So how do you confront somebody in a situation like that without feeling like you're being defensive? Because at least for my own sake, when I confront, or if I'm going to confront someone, I normally work myself up like I'm about to step in a boxing ring. Right. And that never solves anything. Right, right. <laughs> so sometimes it's about just saying, here's what I'm going to do differently. And maybe it's something small. Maybe you have a coworker who talks, comes in your office, sits down and talks for three hours every day. And as a result, you can't get your own work done. Mm -hmm. So you might say, gosh, I'm having trouble getting my work done. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start shutting my door. I just wanted to let you know that in the mornings, now my door is going to be shut because I, I can't have too many distractions. Just say what you're going to do differently and to try not to turn it into something big. It's If you say to somebody, we need to have this big meeting and we're going to sit down and, and you make it a much bigger deal than it needs to be, then it is going to turn into a, a big confrontation that probably isn't going to be helpful. And so before you go in, you want to make sure that you figure out how do you calm your mind and your body. Maybe some deep breaths, maybe you watch a funny video for a few minutes. Uh, sit by yourself quietly, maybe you listen to music, something so that your mind isn't racing and, and that your heart's not beating 100 miles an hour because if you walk into the situation like that, your adrenaline gets running, you're much more likely to, to raise your voice or say something that you don't mm. mean. And then to, to have a game plan. What are you going to say? How are you going to say it? Rehearse it in your head. And then walk through, walk through it, visualize it. Imagine it going successfully. What would you say? What might they say? How how can you respond to them and then maybe have one of those if then plans if the mm. person gets upset what will i do if they start to raise their voice then i'll 
speak mm. calmly or I'll walk out, whatever it is. But knowing that confrontation doesn't have to be a bad thing, I think for so many of mm. us, it's built up in our head that confrontation is bad and that it's about disagreeing and yelling and, and not going well. But that confronting someone is sometimes the most loving thing that you could do. And that it's a really kind thing and knowing that it's being kind to you, but it could be really kind to them and it doesn't have to be bad. It's about saying, uh, I respect myself, but I respect you enough that I think we need to talk about these, talk about these things, uh, that we have enough of a relationship that I want to address it and not just pretend it's not a problem. That's amazing. I love like tactics like that. It was like, if you say in this way, it still gets the results you're looking for, mm -hmm. but of hopefully avoids the problems that you've found in the past. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Um, there was something else that you spoke about, which I find fascinating. I've personally struggled with this is don't downplay your success. Yes. Um, it's, you had said that um, more women typically do this. So um, do you have a reason or an explanation why women do this? And then let's break that down because it's still something that I struggle with and find it difficult to have those barriers of like, I don't know if I'm going too far, if I'm going to, you know, light. So let's start with the why. Women. I think we're taught to be really humble and you don't want to look arrogant, especially nowadays we're talking about narcissists and nobody wants to look like that. And so because of that, we go so far to the other end of the spectrum. We think, oh, I'm just being humble or I'm not bragging about myself. But to the point that we really do have trouble just acknowledging, yeah, I put in a lot of hard work and I am successful. And you can see it in compliments. When men get compliments, they're much more likely to say thank you. When a woman gets a compliment, they're much more likely to say, no, you're amazing. And we give somebody else a compliment. Or we say, no, it wasn't a big deal. We minimize it and really try to pretend like it's like it's not something huge or you know we just downplay it to the extent that it's almost like we insult the person giving us a compliment we say no it wasn't a big deal mm. or we almost offer something back that sounds kind of crazy when somebody says i really like your shoes we say oh these you know i got them on sale for 99 cents what? why do we do that <laughs> i think because it, we just again it comes back to feeling guilty like no no i i don't want to acknowledge that i have good taste or i don't want to acknowledge that i that i have something that's kind of cool so we talk about the really small price tag or we try to say it's you know I, f I found this on sale whatever it is it's almost like there's part of us that feels guilty to just say thank you mm. like we if just saying thank you somehow means that I'm implying yeah I know I'm awesome so right okay so yeah how do you mm. avoid that coming across like that if you say thank you so I think it's okay sometimes to just say thank you when somebody says I really like what you said today in that meeting you just say oh thank you thank you for noticing Something else you can do if, you, if that feels too uncomfortable is to acknowledge the hard work that got you there. So when somebody says, I, I love that you uh, got this promotion or I'm so excited for you that you have all this success, instead of just saying thank you or thanks it's no big deal, say um, thank you, I put in a lot of hard work. And when you acknowledge your hard work that got you there, it doesn't come across as arrogant, but also just gives you credit for the fact that you didn't just wake up and become successful. You put in a lot of hard work to get to where you are and it's okay to acknowledge that you put in the time and the effort to get there. Yeah, God, I still struggle with that. Knowing where the difference is between owning it if someone's giving you a compliment. Right. Um, and then let's say the humble brag, right? Like, because here's what I struggle with. I don't want other people to feel badly about themselves. Yep. But at times I'm freaking proud of something that I've done. And so it's like, I especially if they're close to me, I want to like say, oh my God, like, did you see this? I'm really proud that I had gotten myself to this point. I've worked hard. I've taught myself, whatever it is. 
But if it's to somebody that potentially isn't in a good place, I find myself just not saying anything. Right. Um, because I don't want to hurt that person's feelings. And so I really struggle with that because especially some people who are close to me, they're like, no, I want you to tell me. But I know it's still going to hurt their feelings. Right. So I think it's about knowing, you know, you can be tasteful. And so if somebody's going through a really specific struggle and you just succeeded in that exact same area, then maybe you don't want to say it that mm. day. But <laughs> right. it's okay, I think, to share your success with people and to know that that maybe you're inspiring them too. Maybe you give them hope if they know that you succeeded in an area or you achieved something and they know you, they may want to learn from you too. Mm. So that, and that it's not your job. You're not in control of how other people feel about themselves any more than they're responsible for how you feel about yourself. So it's okay to talk about it. And maybe every once in a while, somebody else will feel bad, but at the same time, there's probably plenty of other people that you'll inspire. And mm. even if they do feel bad, uh, that's up to them to figure out how to take care of themselves. And it's not up to you to shrink yourself, minimize yourself, or try to protect other people. It's okay to be proud of the successes mm. that you have. How much do you think social media has <clears throat> played into these types of things that we're talking about? So, you know, success, envy, jealousy, things like that. Oh, I think it's a huge factor because now we just look around and it only takes 30 seconds of scrolling through Instagram before you feel like everyone else is happier, wealthier, more successful. They're out there doing things that you only dream about. And, and then you start to easily start to think, oh, if I'm not good enough. Mm. I can never achieve that. And studies will show that too, that women are more likely to, to experience that than men are, that men sometimes are more likely to be inspired by other men, whereas women tend to think, oh, I could never be like that. Yeah, how do we get over that? So one trick is to say, I'm going to look at other people as opinion holders rather than competitors. Mm. So if you just looked at another person who's out there and they're crushing it, rather than thinking that person's better than I am or they're doing things I'll never be able to do, just remind yourself, no, that person has information, knowledge, skills that I could learn from and that you aren't in direct competition with them, that their success isn't taking away from you. But instead, you can learn from them. You can choose to follow them. You can choose to be surrounded by people who uh, help motivate you and just take a look at what can I learn from this person in my life. And once you make that switch where you can say, okay, I'm going to learn from these people rather than look at them as, as though they're taking away what I want or that they are somehow going to hold me back, just knowing there's plenty of room and that we can all succeed and that you can learn mm. from other people who are out there crushing it. Yeah. Um, I loved your definition of comparison. I'd never heard of this before, but you said that there's two types of comparison. One is upwards and one is downwards comparison. Um, talk to me about that. I'd never heard it um, phrased like that before. So sometimes we look upward to say, okay, how am I doing? And then you look around at people who are really successful and you think, okay, I'm not doing so well. And then sometimes we think, well, if I want to feel better, I'm just going to remember that at least I'm not down at the bottom of the barrel. There's a lot of people below me. And we tend to think that looking, doing a downward comparison will make us feel better. But studies show that that's not necessarily true. How, how come? Like that really surprised me when I heard you say that. Right. So, you know, we start to then feel bad for those people. We start to then uh, experience some, some form of pity for them. Mm. Something that maybe somebody's parents did, you know, oh, they feed you, your parents feed you dinner and you don't want to eat it all. They're like, well, just remember there's starving children all across the world and that would love to eat your food. Nobody feels better after their parents says that. <laughs> it doesn't, true. right? It doesn't make you then want to finish, finish all the food on your plate. It doesn't make you think, gosh, how lucky am I that I have broccoli? Yeah. So 
I think to keep that in mind that even now when we start to think, well, at least I'm not as bad as those people or I don't have it, I'm not struggling as much, but that probably isn't helpful either. We're not in competition with people above us or below us that we're just running our own race and to resist that urge sometimes to try to temporarily give yourself a boost by doing a downward comparison. Hmm. Doesn't it help give context though? Like I'm fascinated by this because I've been suffering from a lot of health issues mm -hmm. for like four years. And you know, very initially it was why me, like I feel sorry for myself, you don't understand. And then when I started to frame things of like, yeah, but Lisa, you don't have Crohn's disease, but Lisa, you don't have cancer. Like all these things that other people are suffering from, it almost put th allowed me at least to put things into perspective. Um, so I actually found it rather helpful, but at the same time, I actually hear what you're saying about downplaying it. So do you see that there's a fine line or do you think that that's just down to an individual on the fact that like, hey, if it works for you, then do it. Or do you think like it's still a dangerous thing? You know, I think for everybody knowing what works for you specifically, mm -hmm. I don't think there's a one size fits all in anything. I right. think it's about experimenting and figuring out which things work best for you. And I hear what you're saying about saying, you know, at least I don't have this or at least I don't have that. And I think that that's helpful for a lot of us of saying, okay, well, at least I don't have this specific problem. And I think that's different than looking at specific people, maybe. Oh, interesting. And saying, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Um, versus just saying, at least I don't have that specific problem. Huh. You're right, actually, because as you were saying that, I was thinking, okay, I would pity a certain person, mm -hmm. but making it abstract in an essence and saying, at least I don't have cancer. There's nothing to pity someone specific. Right. Is that what you're saying? Right. Oh, that's fascinating. That's really powerful. Um, one thing I love that you said, which I'm like, I'm going to try this. I don't know if it's going to work for me, but schedule time to worry. Yes. I love that so much. It sounds counterintuitive. So if you tend to be a worry war and you worry 24 seven, what the research will show this, it's something I've worked with a lot of people in my therapy office, but to take 15 minutes a day and say, I'm gonna schedule my time to worry. So put it on your calendar. Maybe I'm gonna worry from seven to 7.15 every night. When you catch yourself worrying outside of that time, you just say, okay, it's not time to worry. And then when your worrying time comes around, seven o'clock rolls around, sit down and worry your little heart out for 15 minutes. When your time's up, you remind yourself, okay, time's up, I'm gonna get back to business as usual. And research will show after a while that it trains your brain to know, okay, there's time to worry and I'm gonna set aside that time, so I'm gonna do it later. And instead of worrying all day long, you can contain it to just 15 minutes. Because what I find most people who worry a lot, they tend to think, well, I have to worry about this for a while because I'll either develop a solution or I'll prevent something from happening. Mm. And if you told them, don't worry at all, that doesn't work. Right, Nobody yeah. ever said, oh, okay, I won't worry anymore <laughs> now that you said that. And that you're solved. Right, and that their brains want to. And you know, a lot of people tend to think, well, if I worry enough, I'll somehow prevent something bad from happening. Even on, a, on an intellectual level, people who know that that's not necessarily true will say, well, 90% of the stuff I worry about doesn't happen, so therefore somehow it's effective. My worrying must prevent it. So they, they want to worry a little bit, and so you don't want to take that away, but to know, okay, if you schedule time to worry, then it sort of frees up your brain the other 24 hours out of the day outside of those 15 minutes so that you can focus on other stuff and you have more mental energy to devote to more productive things. God, I love that so much. I'm so going to give it a shot and see if it works, because it actually does make sense when you break it down like mm -hmm. that. Um, so I want to um, just uh, touch on some things about parenting, because going back to what I'd said earlier about imprinting, mm -hmm. I think it's so important. And God, this is one of those things, one of the 
like number 732 of why I don't have children is the fear that there's so many little things that I fear I would do that would have an imprint on the child in old, you know, old life. And I'm sure every parent has this worry. But um, what are like two or three things that you think parents can adopt immediately um, to not do? So one big one is to not take responsibility for your kids' emotions. And in today's world, I think there's so much pressure on parents to raise happy kids. And we think that that means making them happy all the time. And so when kids upset, we tend to be like, oh, calm down. We tell them to calm down, but we don't teach them how to calm themselves down. Or we, when they're upset, we want to cheer them up. If they're sad or they got cut from the baseball mm-hmm. team, we're like, oh, let's go out for ice cream. Mm-hmm. And we just automatically want them to be happy. But we don't give them the skills that they need to control their own emotions. And studies will show that. When they ask college kids, were you ready for college? Like 98% of them say, oh, academically, yeah, I was prepared for life after high school. Yet the vast majority of them said, but guess what? I don't have the skills to deal with anxiety, loneliness, fear. I'm not emotionally prepared to be here. So I think we're doing kids a big disservice. We're not teaching them coping skills. We're doing it for them. So how would you teach a kid coping skills? Like, you know, I'm thinking you've got a five-year-old kid. You and again, I'm not a parent, so I actually don't know, Um, but it would seem difficult to teach kids that. So, right, so I think it's about experimenting with kids. Okay, when you're upset, what works? Maybe you have a kid Mm. who should go run around the house twice, and then they feel better, or maybe you have a kid, if they sit down and they color when they're sad, that cheers them up. And it's about sort of doing all these Mm. experiments to figure out how do you manage your emotions and get your kids involved in in coming up with strategies and ideas and and knowing your child's personality. Some kids can play quietly for a few minutes and they feel better. For other kids, they play quietly Mm. for a few minutes and they they then get sad. Whatever it is, just knowing your child, experimenting with different things and making sure that they know uh, how to do it. I've had parents that create a calm down kit and it's got a coloring book or crayons or maybe a joke book, something like that, that helps kids feel better. And so when they're upset, instead of saying calm down, the parents say, why don't you go find something that will help you calm down? The kid goes over to his little shoebox, opens it up, and it's filled with stuff. And then he has some real-life coping strategies right there in front of him. And then they grow up knowing, okay, when I'm upset, I have the ability to calm myself down. And as an adult, maybe it's more like a mental toolbox rather than a physical one, Mm. but that they have the skills that they need to manage their own emotions. That's genius. And if I was a parent, I would make the box really colorful and happy looking. Right. So it's an exciting thing to go into the box. Exactly. Um, What other thing do you think that parents need to stop doing? Losing sight of their values is another big one. And so we know that there's so much day-to-day hustle and parents are frazzled and we're working on things like making sure that you get your homework done or that you brought your soccer cleats to practice, that we lose sight of the big picture. So when they asked kids in the classroom, would your parents rather that you be the kindest kid in the class or the smartest kid? Almost every kid says, oh, my parents want want me to be the smartest kid in the class. And then when they ask parents, do you want your kid to be the smartest or the kindest? Almost every parent says, I want my kid to be the kindest kid in the class. Interesting. And so there's a lot of research on that, that we're just kind of losing that disconnect. We don't talk about kindness. We talk about the importance of getting your homework done Mm -hmm. or that we don't talk about studying and trying hard and that it's okay to fail. We talk about the importance of getting an A. And so then when they looked at how many kids cheat, I mean, the statistics are like the vast majority of kids today have cheated on a test. And when they ask kids about it, the kids say, well, my parents are more concerned about my grade rather than how I got there. 
And so we aren't teaching kids, no, it's okay to fail, it's okay to make a mistake, but it's not okay to cheat. Hmm. Yeah, and I heard you actually talk about um, grades and how everyone around you, depending on how they performed, um, has a, a implication or an effect on how you feel about that grade. Right, right. If you got a C on a test, but that was the highest grade in the class, maybe you think, oh, I did, I did a good job. If you got a C and you found out everybody else in the class got an A, you're probably going to feel pretty bad about yourself thinking, how come I am not as good as other people? Right. So just knowing how do you measure yourself up against other people? And we do that with kids. We want to know, are you the smartest kid? Are you the best? Are you the fastest one? Are you doing mm -hmm. it better than everybody else? And when we measure their success against other people, we're not teaching them how do you become your personal best. Yeah. God, I literally could talk to you for, for hours, Belle. Um, <laughs> you, your tactics, your message is freaking amazing. Um, what is your superpower? I think facing fears. I'm at the point in my life where I sort of like to be anxious. I feel like, okay, a lot of bad things happened to me and I survived them. So what's one more thing? I love to just face fears and conquer things I didn't think I could do. I love that. And so where can people find you and all the books that you're writing and your articles and everything like that? My website is Amy Morin, LCSW, as in Licensed Clinical Social Worker .com. Nice. Guys, I literally am like a giddy child talking to this woman. Like the stuff that she's been telling us is so powerful. Go back and watch this episode again. Get out a note and, and, and a pen and write down everything. It is so powerful. So if you're not following her, if you haven't read her book, go check it out. Go pick it up. And if you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. And if you're not subscribed, click that subscribe button. If you find that this episode has brought you value, please do share and tell all your friends about it. And until next time, go be the hero of your own life, guys. Peace out.